Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Colony Drop, a Gundam podcast. My name is Brian. And my name is Isaac. This is the Gundam podcast where we talk about everything from the models to the manga to OVAs to anime series to the live action movie and anything and everything else Gundam related. That's right. And today we are continuing our journey into the next 100 years of the Universal Century to prepare ourselves to whatever Bandai plans to throw at us next. And what are we talking about today, Isaac? A very special Gundam movie. It was called Gundam F91. <laughs> it's interesting that you chose the <laughs> the adjective very special to describe this film. <laughs> what I mean by that is this is sort of a unique situation where a movie was released to kind of kick off a series, but things didn't work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I think there's a there may be a lot of baggage to unpack here. So why don't we start with some yeah. some quick background facts? So fact number one, this is a movie, which is already we don't have that many Gundam movies, so it's kind of strange yeah. already. Yeah. Right? It was released in March of nineteen ninety one. So it's very old relative to to today's standards. It's twenty nine years old basically. Um, we're going on to pushing thirty years here. And if you want to watch it today, you can either watch it on Blu-ray or it was recently added um, in early November to the official Gundam YouTube channel, which is Gundam Info. Um, it's on there now for free. Um, I'm assuming that Bandai Sunrise figured, hey, this thing's 30 years old. People, we might as well put it out there for free. I, I, I doubt many people are going out and buying the Gundam F91 Blu-ray, but <laughs> maybe, maybe. Let um, me just say, I have the DVD. <laughs> I, I don't I have the Blu-ray. I have the yeah. DVD as well. I do. Yeah. Did, did I, you go to Suncoast and buy it like I did? <laughs> probably, or that, or Amazon. Like you know, there very you early on Amazon for sure. <laughs> and so, a quick synopsis. This is what today's page on Amazon says. So if you're if you're going to look out, trying to find this movie today, this is what you would see. Universal Century 0123. After a generation of peace, the Earth Federation has begun to build new space colonies to house humanity's growing population. But a new force, the aristocratic Crossbone Vanguard, plans to seize the colonies of the newly constructed frontier side for itself. As their home becomes a battlefield, a handful of young civilians struggle to escape the conflict. To save his friends and family, the reluctant warrior Seabook Arno becomes the pilot of a new Gundam, which bears the codename F91. So that that all sounds pretty good. I think I'm on board. If you're a Gundam fan, you read that. Are you on board with that today, Isaac? You're ready to go. You're like, oh boy, Zeon's out of the picture. Let's see what the next chapter is. Yeah, but before you watch this movie, if someone, if you, if you're out there, if you're listening to this and and you've never seen Gundam F91, and that sounded good to you, I think there's some background facts that Isaac alluded to that you need to keep in mind, which may be helpful before watching this movie, or it may it may help you view it in a different light. So this movie was originally planned as a full-length 50-ish episode TV series to kind of mark the the 10th anniversary of Gundam. But production was stopped due to staff disputes, apparently. And at the time, I guess they only had 13 episodes written. And so at that point, they kind of just said, all right, well, we're going to take what we have and we're going to turn it into a movie instead. If you take a step back, that means this story was designed to be conveyed over about 20-ish hours, right? 50 episodes, 20-something minutes per episode. Sure. So it, it's being compressed 10 times over what it was supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that's just important to keep in mind. I mean, what do you think about that, Isaac? I, I mean, that's just... <laughs> well, I, my first question is, what kind of staff disputes were going on? Like, I'm not too familiar with, you know, labor rights in Japan, but, like, was this a union issue with, like, the writers and the animators or something? Um, <laughs> <laughs> beyond a, a that, question. yeah, be, beyond that, though, like, I just feel like... How did Gundam not have the the staying power where people were able to say, okay, we need to make something quality if we're doing our first story without Xeon? You know, we kind of owe it to the fans that we have to stick the landing. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, Brian, but I, I must say F91 does not stick the landing. <laughs> <laughs> so it's clear that based on what you said, there were essentially problems on day zero before it was even a movie in production it was a series in production and the series really just spun out of control and didn't actually happen so we ended up with a two-hour movie you know i didn't dig super deep into what those staff disputes were so maybe there's some more information out there i mean if if you know off the top of your head you know let us know 
I'll say this though, Brian, this movie completely feels like they took a story that was maybe 13 episodes of what should have been a 50 series, you know, season. And they just crammed those first 13 episodes into two hours because story-wise, this doesn't really have a, a satisfying conclusion. It doesn't conclude the sort of political situation they're in. And the fates of the main characters aren't really concluded either. So it's it, it definitely does feel like they threw episodes together into a, a movie. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I, I feel yeah. like they even threw the... F- so, again, they had 13 episodes written. And it feels like they threw they maybe they had I don't know four to five episodes mostly done, and I feel like that was kind of what we watched for about the first forty five minutes, and then out after that we started going a million miles a minute um, in terms of plot progression, and, and yeah, just, you know it was it was kind of like wow what what is happening? It was very jarring, and we'll get there. But the last thing I'll say is people might think, you know, you might be listening to this and saying. Well, if production was stopped, you know, why did they even make the movie? Like, why not just cancel the whole thing? And that that's a legitimate opinion from the perspective of a fan. But I think if you're, if you know, Bandai Sunrise, you're the person that has spent all the money to, to make that much of the film, to hire everybody. <laughs> the same is true in Hollywood. Once you've made the investment, you need to get something out of it. And that's why they probably went, well, we have something here that we can put out and we can try to at least, you know, recoup what we've done. And so my right. guess is that's kind of what happened. Yeah, and I don't know if maybe you'll disagree with this, but at a certain point or from a certain point of view, this movie feels like Gundam by the numbers, right? Mm-hmm. If you watch the original series, uh, there, there's almost a counterpart to everybody in this movie. <laughs> yeah. So even though it's they, they sort of turned the chapter, right? Xeon's uh, gone. They turned the page. It, it very much feels like a repeat almost of, of Xeon causing problems, except it's not Xeon, it's Crossbone Vanguard. So take take from that what you will. Maybe you disagree, but I imagine, like you just said, Brian, somebody probably stepped in higher up and said, okay, whatever unique story ideas we had for this 50 episode plan, we're going to do Gundam by the numbers and we're going to make back our money. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I think had we gotten the 50 episodes maybe there there would have been more of that differentiation that probably does exist. Um, right. And, yeah. But who who knows? You know, I mean, as, <laughs> I, I think maybe we maybe we would have ended up something closer to Crossbone. I, I don't know. You know, really, yeah. um, it really depends. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's jump into the story, Isaac. Why don't you, you know, start us off. Tell us a little bit about the story here. Okay. Uh, before we do that, though, Brian... Is this your first time seeing F91 or not? For me, this might be my third. Um, this is probably my third as well. I watched. Okay. I first watched it on the DVD, probably like you did, um, and yeah. then I, I also. Oh no! You know what? No, I think I had ordered the DVD. I had like pre-ordered it because remember back back when we bought it, it was probably like 2004 ish when it first came out. At that point yeah. in time, again, this is a long time ago. So. Back then, if a new Gundam was coming out, you really had to go order it because you didn't know how long you'd be able to find it. Like Zeta Gundam came out around around the same time, and I remember that that was just so hard to get a hold of if you didn't pre-order yeah. it like on day one. And so when they, you know, when they were putting out F91, I was like, well, all right, I got you, I got to buy it, you know. <laughs> um, and I think yeah. I think bef- I think before it came, I must I think I went to an anime convention. It was probably Anime Expo some year or something. Of course. And I think they showed <laughs> F91. So I think actually the first time I saw F91, it was at it was at an anime convention in one of the screening rooms, which is actually pretty cool. It's close. It's as close as I'm going to get probably to ever seeing this in a movie theater. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, barring some weird event where they show it at a, at a movie theater in, in America <laughs> 30 years later. I don't think it's going to happen, but maybe um, did, where it, you so you've seen it three times as well. Probably. I'm pretty sure I bought it, watched it, and then maybe a little while later watched it again. And then for this podcast episode, I watched it recently. And yep. I must say, the story isn't engrossing enough to, to, <laughs> to warrant like a lot of repeated viewing, right? Like I'd rather watch like episodes of a show. Like I'd rather watch Iron Blooded Orphans again or something than watch F91 multiple times. I'm I'm sure you feel the same since you also have seen it three times in the last <laughs> 14 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I will say that before the third viewing for this podcast, I didn't remember much of it. <clears throat> it's one of those things in Gundam where outside of the manga, outside of Crossbone Gundam, you know, this doesn't really come back too much. So you're not really thinking about it 
you know, if you watch another series, you know, for example, if you watch original Gundam and, and then you watch some of the side stories, you're still like kind of thinking about all that <clears throat> one year war uh, stuff all the time. And so it stays fresher in your mind, but you kind of just, there's really nothing that connects to this in the filmed uh, works too much. So if you, if you just watch this and you kind of never, you never see these characters again, uh, at least, you know, in, in animation. Um, so you right. kind of forget about them. And that's kind of how I was before this, uh, this it's, third viewing. I didn't remember much yeah. going into it I, at all. I really. rem- <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I remember the broad strokes of the story, but what I did while watching it is I took notes almost as the, as the movie was playing, just sort of scene by scene in a way. And boy, does the plot logic sort of just collapse as the story goes on. <laughs> but that said, speaking of plot, you requested to go into the story, so let's go into it. The story takes place on the frontier side, which is where the Federation's building new colonies. And it just so happens that there's a <laughs> a beauty pageant happening, <laughs> which I, I, I have no idea why this beauty pageant was fit into the movie, but it happens. So it kicks us off almost exactly like the original series. We have these new mobile suits breaking into the colony, just like we had the Zaku's breaking into in the original series to the colony. Uh, but these are Den and Zons. These aren't Zaku's. They break in, and they just start shooting up the place, trying to conquer the colony. They're actually not there to take the Gundam. You know, th- this story isn't really revolving around the F9 run until, like, the halfway point, which I thought was weird. <laughs> 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 so uh, the opening half of the movie is really the crossbone vanguard showing up to the frontier side and taking control of the colonies. I think they're taking frontier four. Um, That's right. Yeah. Frontier four. And I thought this part, I don't yeah. know about you, but I thought this part was actually pretty effective. Like the crossbone vanguard came in and they really just kind of owned the place right away. Like they did yeah. some smart things. They, they flew into the colony they shot up the capital ships who didn't like the Federation capital ships who had no idea what was going on instead of leaving them there to like retaliate later. No, they just, they'd walk straight in and they were like, Oh, there's the ship. And they blew it up. And that was it. There was no, no sort of resistance, yeah, you, you know, to them. What if, what I thought was really interesting was that like they shoot their little claws into the bridge, you know, and like the ship doesn't, you know, explode in like a hail of fire you know it seems like whenever a zaku shot like the bridge like the whole ship would just ignite right <laughs> the solemnness yeah. would just be gone no matter where you hit it yeah but um yep. I, I guess the crossbow vanguard really engineered things to to not blow up their own their, well their future um you know landing base <laughs> yeah yeah and that's key yeah. as isaac said they were there to take the colony so yeah and, okay, so story starts off, and at the pageant, this beauty pageant on the colony, we meet uh, our, our protagonist, Seabook Arno, and I've decided to take it upon myself and give Seabook Arno the trophy for the worst name of a Gundam pilot main <laughs> character because all they had to do was switch the names, right? Arno Seabook, we mm-hmm. could have been fine with that. I, that's This has driven me crazy since I read about <laughs> F91, right? Because I thought... Seabook is a pretty cool name and kind of realistic, but Arno, <laughs> Arno has the last name and Seabook is the first name. It's just terrible. So I don't know what happened in their, their writing room for this to happen. But anyways, <laughs> I, I digress. Well, I think, <laughs> I think, I think Tamino, the, the creator of Gundam, he always chooses very creative and unique names. Um, and I think this was just another, another one of those. And it's definitely unique. I've never heard seabook anywhere else before just like i've never heard shah Aznabal or amro ray let me say this though amro ray sounds like someone it could be someone's real name right? yeah no <laughs> like, i agree yeah shar and amro sound way more realistic than seabook are <laughs> yeah <laughs> but anyways all right so the denizan show up crossbow vanguard shows up attacks the colony people are like running for their lives some escape some decide to hide in the uh, the shelters crossbow vanguard actually takes control of the colony right like you were saying, Brian, we get very close eyewitness view of just the sheer brutality, like the civilian side of mm-hmm. what a colony attack is like. And this is this was maybe some of the most brutal images in a while, right? We saw like that woman whose head gets kind of bashed in by the uh, the shell casing. Yeah, that was right? terrible. <laughs> yeah, she was holding a baby at the time too. They saved the baby. Yeah, yeah. and then um, Arthur, remember he. Oh. Yeah. I but, liked Arthur. He was a good guy. We saw so little. Like, I felt like, he, okay, there's this character named Arthur. 
uh, listeners, and um, he gets killed quickly. And <laughs> I, 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 met, I think they wanted his death to be more impactful than it was because we've known him for like three minutes in the story. And yeah, he, he doesn't get blown up outright. He like, there's an explosion and he gets thrown by the force against like a wall and he, you know, dies from the impact of that. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Seabook's there. So this really shows, I guess, the, the sheer brutality of war. And this whole time, let me remind you, there's no Gundam. The Gundam has not shown up during this combat. This is this invasion. It's just Seabook and like his little teenage friends. And they're kind of on like j- just running, fleeing from the battle, trying to escape. I yeah. don't know about you, but I actually liked his his group of friends. And I think maybe if we had gotten more of a of a series, maybe we would have seen more of them. But I think overall, his his little group of friends, I feel like they had promise. But, you know, obviously, given yeah. the timing, we sort of they kind of dropped off. I'll say this, though. I thought Sam might have been the worst design character because he's like, I don't know if he was like an Elton John tribute or something, but he had like <laughs> these these huge glasses and like this this burning bush of an orange like mop on his head. And I thought like, but, wow, really? This was the best character design we could get. Okay. Hey, well, it was unique. Okay. <laughs> he, I remember him, but not in the right way. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we also see the Federation really being their worst version of themselves because there's a scene where they try to use these children that Seabook is fleeing with <laughs> as human shields. And I was yeah. like, of course, of course they're going to run across the, you know, that Federation officer. Let me say and, this, Brian. Wait, like, wait, wait. And, and not, and not only, <laughs> so not only do we see them at their worst, but there are multiple times in this film where they literally say the, the most outrageous plot point out loud, right? Cause if, if you hear Isaac say they're going to use them as human shields, you may have thought they didn't actually say that out loud, but no, literally in in the movie, the the commander guy goes, "Let's use those kids as human shields. That way they can't shoot us." Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I don't even, I can't even say in his defense, but the situation was the feder uh, the federation has clearly lost the battle, right? There's these crossbow vanguards. They've essentially taken over the whatever's left of the federation forces is bare bones so yeah there must be two federation academies right brian there's one where they teach you to be like a hero right like bright noah or general revel and then there's another one where they teach you to use children as human shields yeah that's the the basque ohm uh, academy of of warfare janitor school for um you know sociopathic officers (laughs) (laughs) okay Anyways, uh, we also see this weird scene where, like, Seabook's dad, he blinds, like, a Federation pilot with a welding torch. I didn't really understand what happened there because I would think a welding torch couldn't possibly damage a a mobile suit. But what do I know? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe he turned it up real high. Okay. Yeah, I guess. And this whole time, as um, as Seabook and the main characters are fleeing the battle... Um, happening inside the colony. They're inside like this variant of a, a tank mobile suit, some type of transforming gun tank. Mm-hmm. And what I didn't understand was how can like eight adults and like 10 children fit inside this mobile suit that's designed <laughs> for like one pilot. For me, that kind of was like, okay, this must be a variant that has a, you know, the it's the cargo troop transport gun tank or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyways... <laughs> Uh, oh, let me say this also about Azuma. Azuma was kind of like, he was the only character that kept his cool. That's why I really liked Azuma. <laughs> wait, wait <laughs> which one was Azuma? Azuma is like, he kind of had like a mop haircut, really small eyes. Mm, oh, yep, yep, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah, I agree. He he always yeah. had a cool head for the most part. Yeah, yeah. He, like, no, he wasn't panicking like anybody else. He wasn't deciding to shoot or anything. He was just... <laughs> They just logically focused on like the next steps and how we can escape or survive. And, and although although you didn't like Sam's design, he, he also had a pretty cool head uh, most of the film, I think. And he was yeah. also pretty pretty useful. Yeah, uh, he was actually willing to fight. Remember? Yeah, yeah they're mm-hmm. they're using bazookas for a while, trying to. Oh, well, I don't know how successful they thought they could be, but you well, know. <laughs> didn't end well for Arthur. <laughs> no, no. Uh, speaking of effectiveness, listeners. The reason the the Crossbone Vanguard is doing so well against the Federation garrison is because they're using um, – this is the first appearance of miniature mobile suits. So every Crossbone Vanguard mobile suit is a miniature mobile suit, which is roughly two-thirds the size of a, of a normal mobile suit. So they're faster, they're more maneuverable, and they're a smaller target to hit. So I, re- I read something about this on the, on the wiki page, which I, which I had never heard of before. 
you know, the in-show explanation is that these are cheaper to produce and they're more maneuverable and they're faster and they can kind of fly around all the big on the bigger suits. But apparently the real reason they, they scaled down the, the suits was because Tamino wanted to make it easier for to make model kits. <laughs> That doesn't really that doesn't really make sense though because model kits are produced like okay go on right well but you have to remember so up to this point uh, suits had been increasing in size right so the RX seventy eight was eighteen meters and by the time of Shars counterattack the new Gundam was twenty two meters so that's a pretty big relative increase in size and so if you're still producing the same scale model kit you're you're getting more and more plastic as suits get bigger and actually we're about to see the suits get even bigger. Uh, you know, if you've if you've seen Charge Counterattack, Unicorn, the suits are just as big, if not bigger, in Unicorn than in Charge Counterattack, and we're about to see even bigger suits in uh, Hathaway's Flash. Wow. And so, uh, you know, if you're using more plastic, you're using more materials. It's, the goal was, hey, let's make model kits easier to to make if we're going to sell the same scale, which is you know primarily either one by uh, 144 or one by 100. So the F91 is 15 meters, and and these Crossbone Vanguard suits, the Denizons, they're you know roughly about the same size. Um, but ironically, apparently, the smaller size ended up <laughs> increasing the production cost of model kits because they had to redesign all the joints to be smaller. Oh, <laughs> so it didn't really work out. No, but in the universe, miniature mobile suits, I guess they make a sense, right? Like, they do. You know, I think so, yeah. Yeah, technology marched on, and here we are. Oh, this is also the first appearance of beam shields, mm-hmm. which if you haven't seen F91 or you're only familiar with you know, One Year War, Beam shields are exactly what they sound like. It's a shield made out of beam energy, just like um, you know, a beam saber. Just think of a shield version. So it it you know incinerates shots that are fired at it and gives a good degree of protection to the uh, the wielder. And unfortunately for the Federation, it seems like every crossbone Vanguard mobile suit has a beam shield. <laughs> <laughs> so they're pretty hard to kill. It's not impossible, but it's it's much more difficult. <laughs> yeah, you have to hit um, it like on the shield part, basically. Yeah. What I also noticed was really cool about this point in the movie is that we actually see civilians getting to boats and ships and evacuating. Mm-hmm. Um, so they get to the space boats, try to book it out of there. It seems like a lot in Gundam. Like if that, if something ever is happening at a colony, people just run to a shelter and like bunker in place and hope for the best. And that almost always goes bad for the colonists, <laughs> right? Because some faction uses a nuke or gas or someone blows yeah. a hole in the colony. So if if you're a listener and you're ever inside a colony and like a battle starting, get out of the colony. Don't <laughs> stay in the colony. Don't wait for those slow shelter doors to close. Just get out of the colony. <laughs> Am I right, right. Brian? Yeah. I mean... <laughs> no, you're right. I mean, look, if this was the real world, you know, if this was on Earth and you went into a nuclear bunker that was far enough down, yeah, you'd probably be okay. You know, you, you wouldn't be okay to, from the radiation when you get back outside, but you'd probably at least survive the explosion. But if you're in a colony, <laughs> there's not that much protection. You know, there's there's no, it's not quite as big. You're going to die, whether it's a nuke right. or whether it's, uh, I mean, we saw in Origin, you know, we saw the gas attack. Well, the bunker clearly wasn't airtight because everyone inside the bunker died. Yeah, oh boy. Well, I mean, they were getting their air from somewhere in the colony, so it's a, it's a closed yeah. system. Yeah. But, um, yeah, okay, so at this point in the story, Seabook, he's, he's taking control of the gun tank variant, and he's running around looking for Cecily, who was his friend that he, um, he knew from the pageant. So she was the winner of the pageant. She's the belle of the ball. He's looking for her, and he runs across her, sort of in a struggle with her stepdad, like a genius, he decides to never close his cockpit. So he he, he takes a, cu- a few shots in there from her stepdad who's wielding a gun and has has awareness that the Crossbone Vanguard were coming. So her dad runs a bakery. And <laughs> this, this whole time, this whole attack, he was out running about looking for Cecily and he found her. While uh, Seabook is wounded, guess who shows up? It's this new villain called Lord Dorel. Lord Dorel is piloting another crossbone mobile suit. And let me just say this about the crossbone mobile suits. I really like the goggle design. It comes off as really sinister. The Denizons kind of have like these German helmet-looking things. That looks cool, too. They don't have the mono-eye like um, Xeon. They all just pretty much use either sort of a, a visor or um, the goggles. But I, I thought the crossbone Vanguard had a really interesting look. Nobody really goes for charcoal gray mobile suit colors most factions throughout the uc really have colorful designs if you think about it like zanscare and i think they favored a lot of yellow and 
Yeah, they had some <laughs> interesting styles for sure. Yeah. But yeah, I agree. The Den and Zons were pretty neat, man. I I really like those. I thought those were those were pretty cool. And then yeah, even uh, Darrell's suit, the the Berga Dallas, I think. Something um, like that. I yeah. thought it was, it was pretty sweet looking. Yeah, crossbow vanguard suits. It looks like almost all of them have this cool weapon called a shot lancer, and what that does is it looks a lot like a lance, and it can fire out, but it doesn't explode upon contact. It sort of drills into like an enemy mobile suit, and it, it keeps sort of propelling and moving. So it, once it kind of sticks in you, it's I guess it's, think of it like a spear that. I guess has inertia in it or some type of thruster that keeps pushing you. So once you're stuck, you just get pushed into a wall or just pushed out of the way. Who knows what they make them out of, whatever it is. They should probably make their whole mobile suit out of <laughs> that undestructible material. <laughs> but anyways. But they're great for fighting in colonies, basically, because yeah, they're, yeah, yeah. you know, they're not going to cause everything to explode. So Yeah. So when we see Lord Dorel, he continues my theory of at some point F91 production was told this has to be Gundam by the numbers because Dorel looks like and acts like a competent Garma. He's got like kind of purple hair, you know. He's this little royal prince guy, and except the only difference between him and Garma is he's actually competent. <laughs> he, he he seems really good at combat. He seems to know what's going on, and yeah, he's not you know turning to Sharf to actually do field work or whatever. <laughs> but anyways, <laughs> yeah, this is also the point in the story where things start to kind of fizzle out in the plot because i agree that's a, I, yeah I, i'm glad you said that because this is the exact turning point that i felt as well i thought we were we were on the rails like i was watching this for the third time and i was like this is so bad i was like i don't know what everyone's talking about and then we got to the part where cecily became separated from seabook and that that's this yes. part where they where they take cecily away and that's when we hit I don't know. That's when, like, you know, someone just threw the lever into, like, light speed, you know, and we just went, boom. The flux capacitor is on. (laughs) (laughs) Like, holy cow, man. So, yeah, this is where it goes off the rails to me. But this is also where we learn the the big twist of the movie, right? In a stunning twist, Cecily is related to the leaders of the Crossbone Vanguard. And she goes with Lord Dorel because he claims that they can help find her mother, which I thought this was just bad writing because the few comments we've heard about the Crossbone Vanguard so far from like a few Federation characters is that they're a pirate fleet. So how does going with a pirate fleet help you find your mother? So <laughs> that was just raised a big question mark for me. But apparently Cecily isn't, that's not her real name. Her real name is Vera, you know, and Cecily's been her, her, her secret name, you know, it's, she's in hiding. <sighs> so, <laughs> all right. Wait, is it Bera? I thought it was Bera. Oh, Vera or Bera. I, okay. I, I, I've seen different. Yeah. I, I was watching a dub. Brian, wa- I'm sorry. I was no, watching I watched the dub. Sub. I watched the dub this time. Oh. I watched the sub. Brian watched the dub. So. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. But you know what? <laughs> We're green on everything so far. So clearly the translation there's, or the there's audio. Quite a, there's quite a few differences. Like, So the dub definitely said Bera. And for Darrell, I know ever I know Darrell is written everywhere, but I swear that the dub pronounces his name Jarrell, and that actually makes more sense in English. Yeah, but then again in Gundam, I always assume whatever name they're telling me, that was the name they meant because all the names are so weird. <laughs> At this point in the story, Seabook's friends have actually managed to get to a spaceboat, so they're heading out the colony, but this was a cool scene. Okay, they're leaving, and um, Mr. Arno, Seabook's dad, who he ran into, and uh, helped them all along the way. He decides to stay behind and help this little girl that's like lost. So I thought that was a really cool scene. We don't see that that often. Yeah, Seabook's dad was was a yeah. He was a G. He was a good he's a, guy. He's a goat. He's a real yeah. MVP. Yeah. He he wins the best dad award in that gun. <laughs> <laughs> he really does. Yeah, he was a good. Tim Ray. Yes. You <laughs> sacko. Oh, sorry. I'll, I'll watch my French, but. <laughs> well, you're okay, Mister Arno puts Tem Ray to shame, but yeah. Mrs. Arno is probably maybe oh. a little closer to Tem Ray. So we'll, we'll get there, but we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll get to that woman. Good. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways. Okay. So we, we sort of start hearing more stuff about like the Cosmo and Vagard at this point They talk about like Cosmo aristocracy. And it, it just sounds so odd when we compare it to Xeon because as much as Zeon was just a, a dictatorship ruled by this family that decided to make themselves, you, you know, the, uh, the sovereigns and the, all that, the principality, they never really called their, their government anything weird, right? Yeah. 
but Crossbone Vanguard just on on day zero, on hour three of the invasion, they decide to say <laughs> we're the Cosmo aristocracy, our territory is called Cosmo Babylonia, and we are the Crossbone Vanguard. <laughs> I, I thought th- these were kind of a lot of names and concepts that throw out the audience that required like reading to actually it, grasp, you know? Yeah, I, I agree. And while they are different from Zeon, they did have like these banners, this gathering of soldiers that did evoke Zeon. But then you're right. Once Carozo uh, Rona got to the podium and spoke, you know, he starts talking about Cosmo Babylonia. He says, this is, it's founded now. And we are realizing that the 1000 year old dream of the Rona family which is the guarantee of the survival of humanity. And I was just like, what? Who, who, who is this family? (laughs) Where have they been for a thousand years? And (laughs) what, what is, how are you guaranteeing the survival of humanity by shooting up this colony? So I don't know. What, what did you think of that? And then, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about your, one of your pals, Carozo (laughs) Ronan. Sure, sure, sure. Like I just said, they throw a lot at the audience and so much of it goes over the audience's head compared to sort of the slow build we got with Xeon, right? Where yeah. we can kind of understand there's a group of colonies that break away, make a new government, and decide to attack Earth. Here, though, this faction we've never heard of. We don't know where they're from. We don't know how they got their mobile suits. They invade a colony and they start talking about aristocracy and Cosmo Babylonia and, you know, the, the power of the nobility and, you know, you need to be a noble and all that. The uninformed person, it would fly over your head. I had to go back and read about the Crossbone Vanguard <laughs> to figure and and the Ronas to figure out what happened. So sit down and buckle up for two minutes. And let me tell you the pre F91 that you're probably going to have to like read a wiki about to fully <laughs> grasp what was happening. Okay. There's a family called the Butch B U C H. And they had a company called the Butch concern. This company had its own flight division. The Butch concern owned by the Butch family wanted to be royalty. So they purchased a Royal name, which was the Rona name. So they became Rona's and they turned their company into essentially the front of the Crossbone Vanguard, and they had this whole plot leading into F91 to take over the frontier side, and that's where they would build, you know, this insane aristocracy-ruled society idea. But how far back does the Butch family go? Carozo was on the mic saying it's a thousand-year-old dream. Have they been doing this since like 1000 AD-ish? Buddy, the Butch concern has been focused on the salvage industry and scrap metal industry in the Earth sphere. That's where this illustrious line comes from. Okay. So this, there's no way this was a thousand-year dream. The leader of the Crossbone Vanguard, who we're going to meet in a bit, this is all his idea. All right? This isn't some thousand-year dream. Okay. He had to purchase this royal name. So this guy's so insane, so out there. Say what you will about Dagwin, but he didn't go out of his way to like purchase a royal name. <laughs> from some, you know, dead or disappeared family and then start his own plot about how he was, he was really a nobleman and an aristocrat. No, the, the zombies just got power. They didn't really worry about anybody caring about their last name or, you know, where they came from and all that. So, yeah, that's the background on the Crossbone Vanguard's genesis. But see, that's, I, I, that's helpful I saved you. Background. I saved you a wiki article. <laughs> <laughs> that's helpful background. That's yes. something that we would have gotten had this been a 50 episode series so that's why i'm saying if you're watching this today and you've never seen it just keep in mind that you're going to be pelted with these advances of in plot of yeah three episodes every five minutes yeah and let me just say this the crossbone vanguard to an extent they kind of out zeon zeon because i thought their uniforms were pretty interesting and there's a scene in the movie where they kind of go you know full full fascist you know they have like this little military <laughs> march there's you know the flags and the oh yeah the be- real flags and beam flags and little fascist uniforms you know Carozo does get up there and give a speech um but even even before we see Carozo's speech the writing i felt or at least the story structure wasn't great because the first time we meet Carozo, and let me remind you this is a man in a mask. He's in a metal or iron mask, tall, imposing guy, military uniform. Clearly some Darth Vader vibes. They probably watched Star Wars and based it, you know, on him. Well, I believe we, I believe the Imperial March is part of the Crossbone uh, theme. Part of yeah. the crossbone or yeah, part of the crossbone theme. So Stole it. <laughs> clearly, uh, you know, Darth Vader inspired. Which is actually ironic because Darth Vader's design is based on 
I, I believe it's based on samurais. So <laughs> this is like a double, <laughs> this is like a reverse inspiration here. Yeah, but we meet Kurozo and he's sitting behind a desk, which, <laughs> as far as meeting a villain, might be the worst way to introduce your main villain in a story. It's <laughs> it's not threatening at all. There's no reason they couldn't have rewritten the story to have Kurozo commanding the invasion right from the bridge of a ship. And yeah, I just I had to write down in my notes that this was a mistake. This is characterization mistake. Well, um, and and also yeah. when we first meet him, he denigrates himself as well. Yeah, he he's got some issues. <laughs> he's separated from his wife, and <laughs> so he took the separation so bad he decided to put on an iron mask and become a cyber new type. So, man, yeah. <laughs> I did like though that we immediately got an explanation for the mask. Yeah. Even if it was like, it's a shame mask. I don't know. There, there's certain like rules in fiction where you don't just say character motivations out loud. Like you never want to have the character just straight up say, "This is who I am." <laughs> Usually, right. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I think given the amount of time here, they basically had Carozo basically say, "Well, I'm a pathetic man because I lost my wife, and I, so I wear this mask." And I was like, "Okay, well, thank you for that explanation," because I was wondering yeah. why you had that mask on. <laughs> In the UC timeline, is like divorce rare or something? Like, I don't know. The Federation frowns on divorce, so like the fact that <laughs> they separate, it's like it's a societal shame he has to bear. <laughs> I don't know. Okay, speaking of characterization, I once again going back to how, um, to an extent, this story might have been Gundam by the numbers. Cecily is the only member of the Crossbone Vanguard that wears red. So I thought maybe the original plan was she would sort of grow up into be the female Char of the story. She'd be this great pilot. She'd be sort of a main opponent that's kind of an anti-hero. And um, she'd actually be on the enemy faction. But we'd never find out because Gundam f 91s is a self-contained movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We also meet the actual head of state of the Crossbone Vanguard. Kind of their figurehead leader, not really their... uh, military leader it's Mitsurona, who's cecily's grandfather and he's more or less a, a daquin that exercises and eats healthy because he's an <laughs> old yeah he's an old man he kind of just sits on a throne and tells people what to do but doesn't really actually know a lot of what's happening day to day but yeah, um, he has a he has yeah. a much more comforting and sane atmosphere than carozo does and then yeah. we'll see why later on but I thought this part was interesting because the, the the family relationship here is very complicated and you only figure it out through a few lines throughout the movie. You've got the grandfather who's Maitza. You've got Carozo who, you, at least it seems like the way it's presented, that he's the son of Maitza. But he's not. He's no. he married in. And he's, he's still the, there. <laughs> yeah. So he married in, but he lost his wife to another guy named Theo. But he's still there sort of commanding the military. And then you have... His ex-wife, Nadia, Cecily Rivera's uh, mother, and you have Cecily. But the guy we saw earlier, Jarrell, or Jarrell, they consider him to be a family member as well. So you think, oh, this is Cecily's brother then. But he's not. He's adopted. So <laughs> He's adopted, fa- but he has the same hair color as, like, Corozo in the flashback. <laughs> right. So this family's just got, like, you know, if you did, like, a little chart, they got a lot of, like, dotted lines and just, like, weird, you know, w- weird things going on. So... Um, again, I think that would have all been maybe explored yeah. more had we gotten more time uh, with these people, but but we didn't. So just, yeah. <laughs> this this family is as artificial as their last name. <laughs> but, <laughs> but anyways, we also see some, when they get their little big reunion in like the throne room, there's some writing issues too, I think, because or pacing issues at least, because Meitzer's already their leader, but he tells Cecily like within seconds of meeting her, we'd like you to be the queen of the crossbone <laughs> vanguard of Cosmo Babylonia. And... Uh, He's already their leader. Why do they need a queen? I didn't. Well, I didn't yeah. Again, that. I think a lot of things that Cecily does in this film are make no sense, and I think that's because we only had two hours to get through fifty episodes. Yeah. Uh, you know, you already pointed out one, which is her going with Darrell. She kind of just said, "Okay, sounds good," and she kind of got in the mobile suit and they flew off. This part as well, they ask her to be queen, and. You're thinking, okay, well, she just saw him like shoot up all the co- shoot up the colony. They killed her friend. Why would she do this? And she's kind of like, okay, I'll do it. I'll be queen, it, you know. So then she goes and cuts her hair and puts on the you know the red. 
and and at this point you really think like you're you're kind of confused as the audience member of like is she just is this a feint like is she getting ready to double cross him somehow but we find out later on that i don't think it really was a feint or at least based on what she says she kind of was gonna do it and she she felt she could you know do a good job or something like that so anyway i think cecily's character was really harmed by not having enough time to maybe make these decisions make more sense yeah she's been with the crossbow vanguard for the greater part of a day and she's still not looking for her mother you know she's just kind of going along with whatever they tell her to do speaking of uh, what you just said right now brian not having enough time to uh continue certain plot threads there's a there, there's a point in the story where seabook says something really interesting he says the colonies you know looked very european and he was wondering if someone in the Federation was working with the Crossbone Vanguard. And I thought, that that's such a Federation thing to do. Mm-hmm. <laughs> to, I, yep. to actually work with, the, to have like a few corrupt Federation people actually working with the Crossbone Vanguard. And the Frontier site was purposely built to pretty much get taken over. Agree. Yeah, I, I'm glad you caught that as well. I wrote that down in my notes too. And I thought, oh, wow, that's that's a really interesting plot thread. And then we never hear about it again. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm sure the crossbow vanguard are like very strict. Like, you really can't make our colony look like you know another culture. <laughs> you know? It can't. It can't. The architecture can't be Asian. It can't be American. Yep. Or, you know, it's gonna have to look very European for us yep. to work with our military. <laughs> yep. So I bet if we got a 50 episode show, maybe around episode 45 or or in the 40s somewhere, it would have came out that the Federation and the crossbow vanguard had you know there was some connection there the whole time yeah Um, yeah but we had to settle for one off one (laughs) off the cuff line by seabook which i don't even think he said out loud i think it was like it may have even been like an internal internal thought or he said to like one person maybe i don't know maybe it was a zuma but uh, (laughs) (laughs) you 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 have to wonder if tamino was like no i really want that line in there because i thought that was a good idea but then it just it never comes up again in the rest of the movie Maybe I don't. Yeah, it, really interesting though to to think about that possible conspiracy. But um, we get these cool shots now that the uh, the colony is essentially under Crossbone Vanguard control. They start painting their logo on the outside of the colony. I thought that was really interesting. They have like this weird, I forgot what it's called. It's like that Babylonian eagle bird thing with like the sun. Yeah, it was, it was a cool logo, and yeah. I really appreciated that they didn't they didn't waste any time, right? They just they're like, all right, the colony's ours. Let's go paint it. Like, they, clearly they had that paint ready to go. Like they brought it with them. <laughs> exactly, that little paint robots ready to go. Um, <laughs> this is also a point where we see the Federation kind of strike back, and to their credit, they they have a pretty good plan. They fly in like with a flake asteroid. That gets instantly destroyed, but you know they're still there to to continue the fight. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Unfortunately, this is also the point in the story where we meet one of the worst named main capital ships in a Gundam series, the Space Ark. Brian, what did you think of the Space Ark as a name and as a ship? Well, I think it suffered from a few things. I don't actually have a huge problem with the name, given that it was basically like a Grounded? refugee ship. <laughs> But it, it was kind of just a boring design. I felt it didn't look significantly different to me in all in, in all the fast-paced action than like a rock high loom. So I did get it confused with like I was like, is that the space arc or is or like what ship am I watching right now? Um, so I had a few of those moments. It, it was okay. It definitely as the as the flagship of the show, I wasn't super impressed like like I would be with you know the the Argama or or the White Base or, or something like that. I'll say this, it's underwhelming in the least and forgettable. But we needed a ship, so they had to check that off the checklist, right? We have our little white capital ship, and of course the F-91 is in it. So there there you go. That's how we get the F-91 story. It was on the ship. But anyways, back, back at Cosmo Babylonia, they're battling it out with whatever's left of the Federation capital ships outside the colony. And the Federation, I don't know if this is standard procedure or just this is how the battle went, but their beams start going into the colony. <laughs> yeah, they uh, they they fired indiscriminately, sort of at yeah. at the colony, which was not a good idea because the, the beams went right through the colony. <laughs> right, and I mean, on the one hand, I guess this is now an enemy colony, right? So they're they're in combat in a war zone. But on the other hand, maybe twenty-three hours earlier, these were Federation citizens. <laughs> so right. and not all of them seem to have left yet because people started flying through the holes again. Yeah. With the mentality uh, aspect. 
Yeah, and these beams, though, aren't hitting just civilian areas. They come really close to the Crossbone Vanguard Palace. I, I guess that means the Crossbone Vanguard had less control than they thought. But Cecily has this really kind of weird, interesting conversation with Meitzer, or Meitza on your version. They're sort of talking like, you know, in their robes, because <laughs> I guess it's night, they don't <laughs> want to sleep because the battle's going on. And Meitzer says, oh, I didn't let the Crossbone Vanguard hurt a single civilian. And this just shows how disconnected he was from reality, I think. Because say what you will about the zombies, but they knew they were killing innocent people. So Meitzer, whether it's Corozo or just Meitzer's own ignorance, but he's really insulated from what exactly happened to take the colony. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and Meitzer's definition of a noble person is just really someone who can stand their ground in, in battle or something. So this guy's got some really weird ideas. It's this whole Cosmo aristocracy cosmo babylonia it doesn't have as much weight i think as like zeon or yeah <laughs> yeah i mean he, that that conversation was helpful though to the story because it did give you a little bit of a, a clearer picture of what he was trying to do or at least what he thinks he's trying to do because he says that he's trying to found cosmo babylonia because he's humanity's future for the moment is still in space because the earth is still healing and although people are going back, only the rich and the powerful are going back, not the rest of humanity. And that and that was interesting to me because that's a theme that we continue to see in Gundam. You know, we've seen that in the first series a little bit. It's going to come up again in Hathaway's Flash. Here it is again in F91. So clearly this the whole kind of rich versus poor and who gets to inhabit the Earth or what parts of the Earth. Uh, you know, clearly that's something that Tamino enjoys uh, writing about. And, and that's a, a point that he wants to make. So I don't know. Point taken, Tamino. Something interesting happens after this. Seabook tries to sneak into Cecily's room at the palace. So he goes back to the colony and decides to sneak oh, in. Oh, yeah, yeah. Before, yeah. So on that note, before we get there, oh, there, yeah. there was a lot of like weird jumps in this part of the movie. Because oh, boy. after we first meet all the Cosmo Babylonia people, all of a sudden we just like jump right to a different colony where the space arc is with our heroes. Yeah. They're, they're now one, on frontier one, but we, we didn't go. see them go there or anything. They just showed up. I literally rewound the film a few times to make sure that I didn't miss anything. Cause I was like in my notes, I wrote, I wrote, okay, here we, here we jump ahead like 10 episodes because I, <laughs> we, we saw them sort of leave and then they were just, I don't know, somewhere different and we had no idea. And they were just acting like they, we should know where, where they were. Uh, so that was weird. And then, yeah, we get, like you said, so then all the stuff happens with the with the Crossman Vanguard. We get the conversation between Cecily and her grandpa. And then, boom, all of a sudden, Seabook is, like, in Frontier 1 again. And you're just like, okay, well, I guess he I guess he flew over here of his own accord. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, it was, oh, boy. Because <laughs> th- at that point, I was like, they are on two different colonies, right? Because we were jumping back and forth very quickly. Yeah, and I think... What barely helps, I don't know, it doesn't even help. Frontier 1 looks almost like a vacant colony. Like, it's just nature, almost. But, you know, Frontier 4 is actually city and all that. That's why the yeah. Crossman Vanguard took over. But but still, it wasn't explained. The, the pace, we're having pacing issues, people. But, yeah, Seabook ends up back at Frontier 4. Crossbow Vanguard has terrible security at their palace because he pretty <laughs> much just hops a fence, runs through bushes, and, like, jumps in a window. And he like he's talking to Cecily, and he, the guards already spotted him, or someone in the the palace already spotted him. And this this part shows that Cecily's a terrible friend, because Zabine, who is like this ace pilot, kind of their 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 crossbone vanguard stand-in for Shar. He's got the blonde curly hair and like an eye patch. He bursts in the room, and she doesn't even tell him not to shoot. He just starts shooting at Seabook. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, yes. yes. And I think around this time in the film, too, we got, we had a few more sort of weird things that happened that just, you know, again, pacing disaster. Cecily gets pilot training around this time. And there's yeah. a part where a lot of stuff happens in about 10 seconds. You see her climb down from a mobile suit and they basically say, wow, you're a really good pilot. And so at this point, Cecily now, has now been deemed a good pilot. And that 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 occurred in 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 about five to ten seconds of her just that that was all you got that that was it like that was that was her pilot training, it took place within a day, and she you saw her climb down from what must have been a training session and uh, Zabine I think was training her and he's like oh he's, you know he says something to the effect of okay well 
you know, good thing you're a natural and you're you're good to go. And this this suit is now yours over here. And so now we have boom, Cecily's uh Cecily's on the level of the uh, the ace pilot crew. Did you yeah. notice that as well? Yeah, it was it was very much exposition, right? It was oh, you know, we just got back from you know our our training. You know, you're you're a natural, and then like other pilots are observing too. Like oh, we had to wait <laughs> for yep. for her or whatever, right? And yeah, like and then. Similar to that, Seabook was deemed uh, the F-91 pilot because, paraphrasing, they basically said, well, we have no one else, so you basically have to be the pilot. And then Seabook was like, yeah, I mean, I might as well do it, right? Yeah, and, so, <laughs> and so, well, boom, your mom there's, our, <laughs> there's our Gundam pilot right there. So, again, everything here would be a, a complete episode. While he's snuck at the colony, too, Carozo gives this speech and he takes a bullet to the face, but fortunately mm-hmm. he has an iron mask and the bullet deflects. But after the bullet, there's an explosion on the roof. Brian, did you have a thought on what that was exactly? Or uh, I assumed that was the crossbow vanguard retaliating from where the shot came from. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. what I thought too. But it it seemed a bit I excessive. Don't know. <laughs> Excess or maybe not excessive. I don't know. Like what if someone tries to shoot like a, a world leader, don't they, you know, send goons over there? I don't think they actually like <laughs> blow up the building. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, you would probably try to apprehend him, I, I would imagine. Um, or or it was the person who shot him blowing himself up. Yeah. I don't know. One of the two. But sadly, this is also a scene where we lose one of our characters. Seabook's dad and him are in this van and they're they're on the run and uh, they take a shot, I think, from a mobile suit in the rear of their van. And it, the rear half blows up, but for some reason, Seabook's dad dies. I didn't really... Yeah, I wasn't clear what his injury was either. He didn't die right away, which I Killed guess... Killed mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, maybe it was a gunshot <laughs> wound um, or some, some sort of internal injury. I'm not... Okay. particularly clear we'll, we'll say but, shrapnel went through yeah, yeah but anyway i mean yeah seabook takes him takes him in the gundam and he dies kind of on the way back to frontier one right but that's kind of when you put the pieces together like oh seabook made it to frontier four him and his dad they must have snuck out because that wasn't really explained beforehand seabook was just like in frontier four no but um we jump it back again to some banter between uh Zabine and uh, Crossbone Vanguard pilots, and they're they're discussing rumors of some type of new weapon that can kill large numbers of people, and it's called you know I think they say bugs or what's codenamed bug. And we're gonna cut it there for this episode. Rest in peace, Mr. Arno. At least you went before the bugs could get you. Next week we'll conclude our review of Gundam F91's plot, Carozo's scheme, and those sweet sweet Crossbone Vanguard mecha designs. Please like, comment, and subscribe. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and on Twitter at Colony Dropcast. Until then, keep those Minovsky reactors warm, stay safe out there, and have a great week, everybody.